0: Clips, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Manira Khayat about her brilliant new book, A Landscape of War, Ecologies of Resistance and Survival in South Lebanon. And then we talk to Neil Ketchley about his article uh, on uh, violence against Christians in Egypt. Uh, before you get to the book segment, though, I just wanted to make sure that all of our listeners were aware of a webinar that uh, that that poem produced um, with uh, Jillian Schwedler and myself talking about how to publish your first book as an academic author. What, What do you do as a first time author? How do you approach editors? What goes into a prospectus? How do you turn a dissertation into a book? What do you do at a book workshop? What should you expect when your manuscript goes out for review? We talked about all of these things. Uh, we were joined by three of the top editors in uh, political science in the Middle East, uh, Kaelin Cobb of uh, Columbia University Press, Kate Wall of Stanford University Press, and David McBride of Oxford University Press, and they shared their experiences and uh, and explained exactly what they were looking for in a successful pitch for an academic book submission. So if you haven't already uh, and if this is interest to you uh, or to your students, uh, I'd encourage you to go and find that on our website or on my blog. And uh, I hope you all enjoy uh, and find useful what we've done. Uh, And now let's go to the program. the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's book segment, we're joined by Munira Hayat of the American University of Cairo, author of the brand new book, A Landscape of War, Ecologies of Resistance and Survival in South Lebanon, which was just published by University of California. Munira, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Mark.
0: So this this is a genuinely uh, fascinating book. Uh, as you know, I, I work in the warscapes tradition as well, but this really made me think in new ways about uh, about what it means to live in these in these long uh, uh, kind of long conflict uh, situations. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to write the book and what you were trying to achieve with it?
1: Sure. Um, so this is my first book um and truly it's the only first book I could have ever written. Um, it's a book about war and it's about and it's a book about war as a place of life. And of course, I mean it comes out of my life and also out of my uh, scholarly labor. Um, I grew up in Lebanon. I'm Lebanese. I grew up in Lebanon during the Lebanese war or the Lebanese civil war, uh, which lasted from 1975 until to, until 1990. Um, and um, I um, grew up uh, with war as a living environment. Um, As a scholar of war, I found myself quite frustrated at the way in which war was always highlighted as a space of um, overwhelmingly a space of violence and destruction. Um, I wanted to also, um, I mean, have a way of understanding war that also grasps it beyond these um, spectacular events. Um, so uh, when I was um when I was um, about to start my field work as a graduate student, um the 2006 war on Lebanon um, erupted. um and uh, unfortunately, it was a a fortunate moment in terms of, of uh, the possibilities of research. Uh, so I call myself uh, a war profiteer in that respect. Um, but um, I uh, I took the opportunity in the aftermath of this terrible conflagration, uh, where thousands died and um, um, and much and many more uh, were injured, and um, damages were extensive, um, to um, explore war um, in South Lebanon, which was the epicenter of this uh, of this conflict, um, and, uh, through the perspective of life ongoing right. Um, so I went to South Lebanon, um, which is um, um, a, the borderland between Lebanon and Israel. Um, Israel is um, um, uh, Lebanon, and Israel have been at war since uh, technically at war since 1948 and there have been ongoing um, you know, um, uh, violent um, uh, engagements, mainly in the uh, in terms of the Israelis attacking and invading and occupying uh, South Lebanon, from 1978 till 2000, um, so I went to that area, which was really the the epicenter of the of the of the conflagration, because Israel wanted to destroy. Um, Hezbollah, their um, uh, their adversary, um, who are also known as the resistance in South Lebanon, um, because they're uh, the main military resistance in South Lebanon amidst a sort of a longer history of resistance in South Lebanon and beyond, um, to Israeli occupation and uh, an aggression. Um, so I went to South Lebanon, and as usual, and I wasn't surprised at all. Um, uh, life was rebounding instantly in the rubble. I mean. Uh, people were back. Um, they were sort of uh, picking through their destroyed homes. They were you know, tending to their um, their animals. They were um, surveying their fields. Um, and the trees, and truly, I mean, what I paid attention to most, because of course I grew up in an environment of war. So for me, war, the destruction of war, is not something that I fetishize, right? It's something that actually takes place uh, in a in a context of life ongoing. And truly, what I want, what I saw of, uh, uh, in front of me, and what I wanted to really um, um, hold on to, and sort of then uh, write about, was the life that was ongoing. So when I went to South Lebanon, I started to ask people about their lives, um, and uh, and you know that's how my fieldwork proceeded, and and this is this book is a result of that.
0: There was a there was a fascinating line in there that really uh, struck that stuck with me um, about your method when you said something along the lines of you you talked to everybody about the war, but the war was never mentioned
1: yeah uh, this is a uh, uh, this is a line that uh, that actually is in the opening paragraph of the introduction um and truly i mean this is uh for me the best way to speak about war at uh, the moment you mention i mean war um certain narratives jump to the surface of of discourse and communication and of course these are very i mean they stick to um the experiences of violence and and destruction um but but war touches life in all of its um uh, dimensions um and um and and these are the sort of the the, the dimensions dimension, dimensions outside of violence and destruction that actually enable life to carry on within the event of war and of course war is not merely an event it is a structure right i mean um, the you know the ongoing war in South Lebanon is a result of a, of a uh, you know a configuration of enmity and violence um, that main, that is maintained between two nation states, right and and these are this is the context within which people in South Lebanon um, uh, wage their lives, right? So truly when you want to understand how do people live in war, um, it is very, um, it is a good method. To avoid uh, the mentioning in the beginning of war, uh, to ask people about how how do you live here, and eventually, of course, everything that they say is going to be about war and how they actually you know make life in a sort of in an acropolitical space, in a in a destructive a destructive space, in a deadly space, um, and so you can more subtly, more carefully, more groundedly, and less kind of. Um, um, ideologically let's say or theoretically sort of a removed theory of war doesn't emerge a more lived one emerges
0: you talk about this as a, a theory of war from the global south uh which looks different from the way it's discussed in a lot of the a uh, lot of the literature
1: yeah thank you for this question actually mark because it's this is actually um Sort of the the heart of my project. Um, One of the things that I am extremely uh, frustrated by is how we in the global south are often uh, sort of um, um, invited onto, uh, invited into conversations as examples of or ethnographic instances of um, theoretical formulations that are emergent from uh, you know, from the global north. Um, and war is a particularly obnoxious um, uh, sort of uh, northern dominated theory in that sense. Um, because war, I mean, the when we think of war and when we think of war in the way that it's sort of very commonly used and even theoretically deployed um, uh, now, and um, it's a concept that has come out of um, the post-World War II um Global setup, right? So, World War II was um, was a massive war that involved uh, a lot of the world, um, but mainly the sort of the global, the big global powers. And in the aftermath of this war, um, after uh, you know the devastating uh, bombing of um, um, of Japan, but also um, you know the firebombing of uh, German cities, those were massively uh, horrendous and violent events. That were then theorized or sort of understood to be the end. I mean, uh, as having been, um, as having been done in the name of peace or in the desire of peace. After that, peace descended, right? And then everything that was war-related somehow got. Pushed under the carpet, including the possibilities of states like uh, Japan and Germany, who true true were were the adversaries in this war, but whose people suffered immensely during these wars, uh, were no longer even to speak. Uh, were no longer able to speak even of of the violence and the suffering that they uh, that they that their I mean that the uh, civilians had suffered during this war. So I mean I just want to say that so after that a, a rhetoric and an ideology and understanding of of peace as the normative descended on the sort of global scale and actually in the aftermath of World War II um, war got pushed into I mean got pushed out of the 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 Western theater the global northern theater and into the global south. So wars never ended, right? But they ended for Europe, for for, um, the United States. I mean, and of course, the United States, it must be mentioned, uh, participated in World War II, but never on their own grounds. So the U.S. has a very particularly exceptional understanding of war um, as something that happens elsewhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so... um, and so for me i mean uh, this uh, this understanding of war as being subordinate to peace as and peace being the normative and, and war being the exceptional and also war being i mean when it when it erupts in places like the global south it's often understood as something primordial, something savage, something that of course those barbarians in those like you know southern zones um, uh, utilize to communicate with each other because you know they're not as, as as um as advanced or as civilized as we are. So the point that needs to be made, and this is what I want to make in my work, which is an ethnography, but it's not an ethnographic instance. I'm also insisting on a the theory of war. That I want to speak about, right? I don't want to. I don't want to be the, you know, the girl from the global south who grew up in war and who's here, like you know, sort of um, going ranting on about how war is a normalized space. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to actually understand war as a global as a global process, right. and as something that actually is ongoing. And it's ongoing because also those powers who are now living in the comfort and the complacency of peace are are, are, are waging those wars elsewhere. Right. So I want to I want to quote unquote normalize war only to under to help people understand that it is a part of modernity. It's a part of capitalism. It's a part of the way that nation states function. Right. And these wars that people um like like me and others in the global south, you know, live in and through, um, are are a result of these global processes that implicate the global north as well. So A theory of war that I want to speak of, I mean, from a perspective of an anthropologist, I speak about war. I start with war, the ethnographic instance of war, in order not to normalize, not to naturalize, but to humanize. Once you start seeing people who live in war as humans, as fellow humans, as humans who deserve life and, uh, you know, all the luxuries that, you know, non-war can entail, um, um, then we can begin to understand that war is a terrible place, but it's also a terrible place that we are, we, those of us living in the global north, right, are equally responsible for.
0: And and it's fascinating also, just as you said, not normalizing or glorifying war, but the reality is that you're talking about people in places where it is the norm, at least the possibility of war, the experience of war, the legacies of war, um, but you still live, people still have lives and yes. it, in all of its dimensions.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, so so the, the the I mean, my book really kind of kind of opens up this lived space of war and shows the ways in which war um, uh, in which uh, war is a generative of life worlds. So if you have to live in these environments, you find ways to live within them. And I call these resistant ecologies mainly because I mean it's a it, it I mean it's a it's a uh, sort of an analytic or a metaphor that draws on the agricultural sort of life-generating realities in South Lebanon, but that can also be further sort of abstracted to all the kinds of relations that allow people to live in war, but also not in war. So one of the things that I try—I mean, I look at the, the ecologies that I look at, at in South Lebanon—revolve um, around the main uh, sort of uh, life sources for people there, and that's the land and the landscape and uh, the tobacco farming and the olive trees and the goats. Um, um, but but also I want to sort of not—I mean—not stay there. I want to also think about those ecologies as something that are relational and a rel- not only human, human, but beyond the human. So I want to also decenter humans in the thinking about sort of survival, life and survival um, in um, and resistance in, in a place like South Lebanon, but beyond. And very and, and in the last, in the last chapter in the conclusion, I kind of point to, but I also do this throughout the book, the fact that when we think of war, um, I want to also connect war to other destructive processes that we sort of understand as livable, even though they're terrible, which is like industrial and capitalism, right? Um, And all kinds of, uh, you know, wreckages of modernity um, that are more easily graspable for those of us inhabiting Um, the more peaceful zones of the global north, right? So all of this, um, you know, um, uh, Anthropocene talk and multi-species talk really sort of centers around mostly um, sort of the, you know, the anxiety that now has grasped people in the global north that, oh, you know, uh, climate disaster is upon us and we're all going to die. And suddenly everyone feels, uh, you know, vulnerable and recognizes their existential limits, you know? And I'm saying, hey, um, it, it actually the world uh, it, this is, the the fact that the world is going to end is actually a, a very uh, late in the game realization for the majority of uh, you know people in the global North uh, because the world does end and has ended time and again for so many people, right? Um, and so how do people live with the end of the world uh, in sight, right? Of course, people aren't just gonna lie down and take it, right? They're gonna try to live within these completely unlivable uh, circumstances. And so um, this is what I, I mean, this is what I try to show through my focusing on the living and, and also in my insistence on a theory of war from the South that, that focuses on living rather than dying because it also helps us link war as a structure, right? And as a structure that is that is, that is that is, I mean, uh, shoulder to shoulder with structures, I mean, which is actually in, embedded in and nested within structures such as the nation state and capitalism, right? Um, uh, that we all have to contend with. So we can actually learn from those war worlds um, and uh, and and also uh, recognize that our vulnerability, uh, our, connect our sense of vulnerability to the realities that people live every day um, in uh, war ravaged, uh, you know, sections of the globe.
0: Well, with that, why don't we go to South Lebanon itself then, and kind of talk about some of the specifics of what you looked at and uh, and and how you analyze this, and maybe a, a way of transitioning to that is um, again one of these things which just jumped out at me and uh, uh, you know kind of stuck with me was that when you were talking about the uh, the, the centrality of tobacco cultivation, uh, you you mentioned almost in passing that. You know, there there used to be uh, uh, fruit trees and uh, and the olive trees, but the Israelis tend to target those uh, because resistance fighters might hide beneath them. And so and that kind of denaturalizes the uh, the agricultural cycles. Um, let's talk about the tobacco. Let's talk about the tobacco cultivation and what that means in your kind of approach to, you know, this landscape method.
1: Okay, great. Um, so so uh, south lebanon is um uh, and the south lebanon that i refer to so i mean south lebanon refers to the southern province of lebanon um but but the south lebanon that i refer to in my book is uh, specifically um the the what used to be called the occupation strip um uh, and the israelis used to call it um, their security zone um it's a, it's a strip of land that is 10 kilometers uh, wide uh, and uh, 60 uh, kilometers long. Um, but of course, South Lebanon is uh, very uh, hilly and mountainous. And so one needs to think about it in terms also of, of elevations. Um, historically, it's uh, it's referred to as Jabal Amin. Um, but also it is um a Bibli- it, it is um uh, coincides with biblical galilee so galilee is not only in in palestine it's also in south lebanon uh, historically speaking um geographically speaking um so this uh, border zone sharit al hadud al muhtal uh, the occupied border strip um was occupied by israel uh, from 1978 which was its first sort of mechanized Invasion into South Lebanon. Um, they invaded South Lebanon um, uh, with uh, the stated um, objective of uh, displacing the Palestinian um, uh, resistant uh, um, uh, guerrillas um, who had taken up, um, uh, you know, the struggle for the liberation of Palestine from South Lebanon. Um, and uh they um uh continued um in, in 1978 uh unifil the the um, uh, U- um, the united nations interim force in south in lebanon uh was was formed with the assumption or the desire or the sort of stated objective that israel would soon withdraw so they and the un uh, uh resolution said israel must withdraw forthwith right, right so it's forthwith took um 22 years um 78 they um they uh, withdrew limited i mean they withdrew but they left um a, a local militia um in charge an allied militia this, which which uh, which came to me, uh, their, their leader at the time was uh, saad haddad and then later um uh, antoine lahad took over and it became known as the South Lebanon Army. Um, and then uh, they invaded again in 1982 and this invasion, of course, the terrible 1982 invasion of Lebanon um, where uh, almost 20,000 people, people perished and which um, culminated in, in Beirut, at least with the Saban and shatila massacre of the Palestinians. Um, um, this, uh, this invasion um, uh, also, I mean, they, they also withdrew um, uh, it, it, after this, after they uh, arrived in Beirut um, and they um, then uh, uh, um, um, bolstered the forces of uh, the South Lebanon army as they withdrew. They stayed in South Lebanon, starting from Saida, until 1985 and then they withdrew completely but then they stayed the israelis and the sla stayed in south lebanon from 19 i mean from 1980 78 1982 and then until 2000 um during this period um, um I, I mean this became technically known as the as a south border uh, the, i mean the south lebanon occupation zone um there were um it, it was an it was a car, a carved out, out cordoned off from the rest of the country there were uh, checkpoints uh, that were uh, Manned on one side by a UNIFIL and who are an observer force, um, and uh, and then and the South Lebanon Army. So the South Lebanon Army were in, in, in sort of uh, control, uh, backed up by the Israeli army, because the Israelis didn't wa- wanted to lessen the pos- I mean the possibilities of their military deaths. They um, would uh, sort of uh, hang out in uh, very fortified hilltop. Um, uh um uh, locations uh, such as Beaufort castle which used to be a crusader castle famously then was taken over by the palestinians and then was taken over by the israelis um so so th- so this was a situation in south lebanon for until 2000 and 2000 of course after years of resistance and resistance in south lebanon went from you know palestinians and leftist coalitions right to lebanese uh, you know resistors um you know communists and um the syrian uh Socialist, uh nationalist party as well um and the um, um and then uh, and then sort of le- and of course the islamic resistance began began with 1982 and islamic resistance then became Hezbollah, who became the most uh, sort of prominent military uh, force in South Lebanon. Um, but of course, Hezbollah is a is a homegrown resistance, right? So Hezbollah is quite famous or infamous, depending on where you look at it, um, or orga- military organization um, that grew out of the, um, the, the the occupation of South Lebanon. Um, and so in 2000, after years of successful, I mean, successful resistance, mm-hmm. military uh, resistance, by Hezbollah, but I always insist on saying Hezbollah is more than, is not only Hezbollah, Hezbollah drew on a long history of guerrilla warfare in South Lebanon that included Palestinians and other Lebanese groups that were not necessarily Islamists, Um, and of course included the the support and the, the, uh, I mean, the collaboration, the cooperation of the villagers of South Lebanon. Mm -hmm. You cannot be a successful resistance uh, uh, um, uh, force without um, without being, um, you know, without having the hearts of the people, right? So uh, Mao's dictum, right, that, that guerrilla must um, must move through, um, you know, must swim through the people like a fish does in the sea, right? I mean, that's a successful sort of um, uh, um, uh, approach of, of, a, of a of a resistance movement or a guerrilla movement. Um, so okay, so so I, I mean, the the world that I looked at was was um, six years removed from the end of the occupation which is not so long when you think right. of it. But it, there, were, there had been several conflicts. I mean, there had been several conflicts. And, and, and as the years went by, Israel started to narrow its sort of aggressive rhetoric against Lebanon to, to attacking Hezbollah, which they understand as, this, um, uh, as a terrorist organization, of course. Now, terrorism is once, once you say terrorism, everybody thinks that all is fair and love and war. And of course, I mean, that's a very uh, well-worn tactic, right? So um, so um, but Hezbollah, is, as, as I say, is not only Hezbollah, they are sh- true, they're the military force there, but they are, I mean, a part and parcel of um, of village life. Many people see Hezbollah in many different ways. They see it as a regional um, a force that is, uh, you know, allied with Iran and funded by Iran and all these kinds of transnational networks. Yes. It is that too, uh, but it's also a, a very very local force. Uh, and and over the years, uh, military resistance was really like taken over. I mean, they took over most of the military resistance in South Lebanon, and it became really their forte. And they became super successful at uh, fighting a, a guerrilla war. Now, a guerrilla fighter needs the landscape. A, a guerrilla fighter it fights defensively. A guerrilla a, a guerrilla fighter cannot. Um, I mean, um, o- I mean occupies the position of 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 the of the invisible right mm-hmm. in 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 an altercation with a huge mechanized army and war machine like that of Israel. Israel has one of the most, I mean, it's 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 generously, gen- massively generously funded of course by the US. It has all the cutting edge um, uh, machinery that it needs in order to um, kill as uh, uh, effectively and as widely as possible. It also breaks uh, uh, war rules all the time because supposedly the people that it's fighting against uh, don't really qualify uh, for the category human, et cetera. Right? So um, so people in so I mean, in this in this ongoing fight, which I mean, so I mean, it extended itself in in active form from the 1960s, right from the uh, from the 1960s, when the Palestinians took over in South Lebanon after the Cairo agreement in 69 um, until Um, Let's say, 2006, the war that I did search after was the last great um, um, conflagration Um, across all those years, um, people have been living with this environment and the landscape is a source of, of the strength of the military fight against this big bad enemy, which is Israel but it's also the source of life for the people who insist on staying in their villages right many people say okay why don't people leave i mean this is like the most privileged question that anybody can ask like as if leaving is some is a choice that one makes easily or even can make for that matter where to right um so uh, i mean and, and ironically enough because of also i mean the you know the occupation of south lebanon coincided with uh, you know the lebanese civil war many people in the capitals and other you know coastal cities where most of the population of lebanon are would leave um, uh, the, you know, the, the sites of those, uh, of this violence and, and escape to the sort of the more secure and more right. safe uh, sort of environment of their village home, which also occasionally then became, you know, spaces of, of massacre and death. So the landscape is a, is, is a space of commonality between the, the adversary and those who want to live, but also those who want to resist, resist in terms of living, but also resist in terms of fighting. And so this is why the landscape to me is so central.
0: So so when you look at the landscape, then you're looking at the people um, and, their, and, and their life or their efforts to uh, sustain life there um and in a, in a number of different ways so let's talk about the people and what, what do they do on this landscape how do they live
1: yeah so you asked me about tobacco and stuff yeah let me let me get to that so so um uh yeah the, i mean south lebanon and all of the highlands of, of the south are uh are tobacco farming country so lebanon has historically been uh, a major um uh um Cultivator or space where tobacco has been cultivated since uh, since the time of uh, the Ottoman Empire. It became a monopoly um, of um, uh, I mean, it started as a monopoly of the Ottoman uh, Empire, and then uh, when the uh, French mandate when the Ottoman Empire collapsed and the French and the French took over uh, Lebanon, it became a monopoly of the French. Um, so it's always been um, it's all uh, tobacco farming has always uh, functioned as a monopoly in South Lebanon. Um, uh, during the 1970s there was a pretty strong sort of labor movement um, that was not unrelated to the sort of the ongoing the, the strength of the the leftist coalitions um, or the leftist parties in Lebanon the communists in particular um, in uh in sort of winning winning the hearts and the resistance uh fight um, uh, um of of the southern of the southerners um and so tobacco has always been a very uh a rallying point um, for the possibility of life and resistance in south lebanon um and that and during this moment in the 70s um the the um uh, the the tobacco monopoly, of course, because it was a, a monopoly of the state, also the, I mean, all of the um, uh, the revenue for it was going straight into the pockets of, you know, the functionaries of the state, right? And in Lebanon, of course, we all know it's a kleptocratic, oligarchic, um, if, um, you know, a za'im, a uh, clientelist system, right? And so tobacco was always funding the big guys and the landowners. And so there was a kind of a pushback in the 70s from the you know the the peasants the farmers, uh, the small people, um, especially in the aftermath of um, you know the Israeli occupation of South Lebanon um, and the fact that all the landowners who were all, who are often absentee landowners truly were no longer I mean their land was no longer accessible to them so the people who stayed on the land were like this is I mean what are we farming for we're farm I mean we're farming and we're getting nothing and we're the ones who are here. So there was a moment where the Lebanese state actually realized that they needed to kind of cut a deal with those with those folks who were who were who were like manning the front lines of the country. And they were thinking, gosh, if we don't do something that actually allows those people to stay in those villages, they're going to be, you know, ghost towns in no time and Israel can do what it wants there. So there was this kind of um, a realization that there was a need to support the people, which is very very rare in Lebanon. But of course, it was a, it was an understanding. I mean, they don't they don't care about the people. the 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 elites who are in power in Lebanon, as we well I mean, as you as we well know, and which uh, you know, the ongoing devastation in Lebanon today um, uh, shows you know loud and clear. Nobody cares about your average citizen, right? So it's all about um, the the elites. But at that moment, the state actually recognized, as it was in the throes of a of a civil of a civil war. That they needed to somehow um, support their southern uh, front, and they uh, they 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 redistributed. It's a license, so it's a monopoly. So it's a license based system. You need to have a license in order to plant tobacco, and um, and you sell, of course, your tobacco to the monopoly at a fixed price. So those licenses, of course, all belong to the to the to the landlords. They redistributed them. Um, to the to the people. And so um, you have uh, now villagers, normal people, um, uh, I mean, um, farmers um, who who now own licenses and those licenses basically allow them to allow them a pretty um, um uh, reliable let's say income uh based on their ability to uh, plant tobacco um year in, year in year out now tobacco itself is a really remarkable creature um it's a it's a it's a plant that is very hardy um and that that needs no infrastructure so all it needs actually <laughs> is uh, is poverty um and la- and like little pieces of land large families right uh, people who are willing to do it's it's pretty labor intensive. Mm-hmm. This is why I said poverty, because I mean you wouldn't do it unless you have to. You wouldn't plant it unless you have to. Um, and so, and and because uh, South Lebanon is 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 high elevations, um, it uh, you basically need to, all all the you need to just kind of sprout the seedlings in the spring, put them in the fields, and then they take care of themselves. Uh, you irrigate only the seedlings which which is in a circumscribed area right and then once you plant them in the seed in the in the in the soil um they grow i mean they irrigate themselves through the 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 dawn uh, the the, dew, the the dampness of dawn the humidity of dawn um in the highlands and so um it, it it's a it's a plant that really has a, that has a short lifespan. You plant it in uh, February, and March, and then it grows, and then it's harvested in the in the months of summer, um, June, July, and August. It should be done, um, and uh, and the tobacco work, of course, the har- I mean, the the pl- the ploughing and the and the planting uh, involves men, um, although I must say that only the plowing these days really involves men. Uh, the planting is the work of women, and uh, the harvesting and the threading. So you thread it as well, and you then you cure it. You hang it up, and it dries, um, and then you pack it, and then you sell it to the monopoly. Um, the, in the, gen- the, the gender, uh, the
0: gender part there was really interesting. The role of women in in, yes. uh, in the in the whole process.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And so so it's so it's actually I mean, and this is one of the dimensions why tobacco is such an like, I mean, it really kind of uh, resonates very um, vitally, let's say, Mm -hmm. with the uh, the people who live in these in, in this in this area, because most of the men and this is the gender dimensions of war most of the men are either uh, abroad working and that's like the majority and a portion of them are away fighting and the people who live who inhabit the villages who are really holding down you know the the sort of the living front here um are uh, the the women the children and the the older folk who um who you know um um uh, can't uh, can't fight or uh, or work elsewhere right so so the fact that it's, I mean, the the fact that it's women who are who are doing this work, um, also complements the kind of the, the the um um the the sort of fragmented um let's say landscape of life in this area. Um, and so it's it's a so tobacco is a very it's a vital income because it's one that one can rely on all the time. I mean, who knows if a son goes abroad and and works whether you know he he'll be successful or whether he'll. able to send back remittances. I mean, those things are all sort of um, questionable, right? Um, But but tobacco income, as long as you find a strip of land to plant it and you can harvest the amount that your license uh, um, allows, you will have that income at the end of the year. And because people live frugally, they live in their own homes, they plant a, a sort of a, they call it a sahara. It's a little kitchen garden adjacent to the house. Uh, many people have one or two fruit trees, which they uh, which they make use of. Uh, and of course there are olives um, uh, that, that folks um, um, uh, harvest. But uh, that's another question. An- another issue that I want to, uh, that I'll talk about in a sec about trees. Um, so tobacco is more and more, more, uh, has become more and more relied upon uh, by the folks inhabiting um, these regions. And it's important to point out that the folks inhabiting these regions, they do it. They do so because it is sort of the effective and genealogical, um, you know, uh, place of their lives. Right. There are sort of like, you know, uh, more romantic attachments to these to these worlds. Uh, but often people who live in, in in South Lebanon live there because it's the most viable place where they can live. Right. So. Um, so I mean, this idea—I mean, it's not ideological. It's based on the the the, the need, right, to make life um, that people are there. So, so tobacco is becoming more and more um, a sort of the source of everyone's income, which also makes it problematic in the sense that they're. Um, They are, um, um, uh, you know, not. They're not only. I mean, uh, they're 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 moving away from other forms of crops, right? So before there used to be all kinds of crops, and people are now relying on this monopoly, which ultimately relies on a monetized, right, uh, sort of. I mean, which which results in a in in a monetized uh, sort of uh, profit, and so then people need to then buy the resources that they're no longer, or the 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 staples that they're no longer planting, etc., right? And so they're also neglecting other things such as um, their orchards um, and uh, and sort of the you know like grapes, let's say, and and olives as well. Um, everything's becoming kind of a cash economy, which is, I mean, uh, well known in in war zones that right. uh, that cash kind of rules the day. Yeah
0: no and, and it's really interesting seeing all of these interconnections uh between, yeah. between the war between the agriculture between the um the, the gender relations it, it, you really make it all connect together um one what in the time we have left i want to switch over to uh, your, your other, one of what probably my favorite chapter in the book which is about uh the goats and the landmines and the legacies of the cluster munitions um because yeah. i don't think they're, i mean it's such a such a perfect Kind of encapsulation of this notion of how the war, the land, and life are all connected,
1: yeah. um, so I mean, it's it's a remarkable it's a remarkable thing that took me a moment to recognize. and I mean um that that goats are um are mine resistant. <laughs> so I mean, South Lebanon is heavily heavily mined. um and not only that, so you one have, of the most you know, on earth,
0: uh, it's probably yes. the most heavily land mined on earth,
1: yes, indeed um i mean for the small as one of the deminers uh, described it as a postage t- stamp sized you know section of uh, of the globe right i mean lebanon is a tiny country and south lebanon is a, is a is a is a is a sliver of that tiny country um but it's really one of the most heavily mined um uh, spaces on earth um and uh, and on top of that uh, you have, I mean, you have the minefields, but you also have cluster bombs, right? So cluster bombs is one of those uh, sort of gray zone munitions that Israel has loved um, to inundate um, South Lebanon with, um, and uh, so cluster bombs and, um, and and incendiaries like phosphorus as well. Those are those are those are munitions that are banned for use in civilian areas. Uh, by international conventions, and Israel doesn't care. And it it does it ongoing in these areas because it, it has the same recognition that the U.S. had in Vietnam, which is that if you disrupt you know the life of the ordinary people here this is going to undercut the 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 potency of the military that that uh, that we're fighting and of course like uh, like the americans failed to recognize in vietnam um that i mean israel does it too is that they just double down on the violence right and of course i mean uh, they're surprised that somehow you know uh, life continues i mean that people can i mean that the resistance continues in these areas right and so um, so they they have, uh, so South Lebanon, I mean, if to live there and to be a, you know, agriculturalist there and to be a, you know, a pastoralist there, you really have to contend with, with the explosive nature of the landscape. And the landscape, I mean, is, uh, I mean, so you have the mines and the cluster bombs. And so many, many people, okay, they plant tobacco. Tobacco is a, it can be planted in, in sort of areas that are more or less accessible and small, like strips of land, terraced agriculture, et cetera. Um, but goats, I mean, goats are the, are the, are the animals that that, uh, that the pastoralists rely on um, are uh, are truly. I mean, you you need wide expanses of land in order to uh, allow them to graze, right? And um, and gro- goats are very um, profitable. They're profitable because they are a source of um, uh, uh, milk. Uh, that creates that sort of generates a lot of the staples of the you know the southern larder and also they can sell it uh, they can sell it beyond uh, you know their villages uh, meat uh, which is of course eaten only uh, ritualistically and occasionally because most people can't uh, indulge in meat eating that often thankfully <laughs> and uh, and of course manure which is really really important for for the agricultural projects within uh, South Lebanon and beyond so. So goats need a large expanse of land in order to graze, and so um, uh, one thing that uh, that is really remarkable about those goats is that they're able to make use of the land that has been has fallen into disuse uh, because of its explosive nature, and the locals know this, right? So you have people who walk, uh, who take their, who intentionally take their goats to these wonderful um, sort of expanses of border grasses, right? Because the Israelis have also mm-hmm. uprooted. I mean they're like the like the US and Vietnam, Israel attacked really the 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 green cover, right? Because trees and, and all kinds of like woodlands are extremely um are extremely protective of gorillas, right? So so the Israelis have uprooted a lot of the of the woodland in South Lebanon. So you end up having really nice grasslands. Those grasslands can't be used for agriculture. Um they're used for grazing. And those grasslands are heavily mined. So the so the um the um uh, the the herders take their take their goats uh to these areas and make use of these areas um uh for uh you know the sustenance of the goats and um and the, and the goats as well I mean if you want to think about it in terms of like war and rhizomatic uh, sort mm-hmm. of uh, capacities right um when there is war goats are pretty hardy first of all one goat itself is like a ma- is not a massive investment right so it's not like a cow or a horse right um or a camel for that matter I mean those were uh, forms of livestock that actually Actually, were very um present and are prevalent in South Lebanon uh, prior to um, the onset of Wars um, and of course the cutting off of borders no longer you no longer needed pack animals and obviously you wouldn't invest so much in a cow because a cow gives you milk and meat but is a huge investment that you can't go for so all the forms of investment agricultural investments in South Lebanon are uh, sort of a are kind of those hardy creatures like the tobacco sprout, you know, right. that can grow anywhere and doesn't need any infrastructure. And the goat that that can, you know, walk on a mine and not trigger it, and that actually during times of war can, can just kind of like hang out on its own and like eat whatever. And then afterwards we can, you know, you recollect them and you still have, you know, a semblance of a herd that you can carry on with, right? So so the landscape, I mean, um, is a deadly one. But here's one way in which, you know, sort of a vi- there's a there's a multi-species alliance right mm-hmm. between between humans and goats that really allows uh, this, this assemblage, right, to resist the deadly realities um, of the land.
0: And yet it's still quite deadly. And you give a number of anecdotes of people who, you know, maybe a goat like falls and needs help. And then the farmer yeah. goes and gets blown up.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for reminding me of this. I mean, I wanted to. I wanted to say something because also, uh, it's something that I'm often um, sort of tasked for. I sort of look at um, uh, conviviality. I, yes, I look at vitality. Um, yes, I look at um, you know spaces of love, of care, of cultivation, of affection within horribly deadly worlds. Right and and all those things that i'm looking at is not to say that those worlds are not deadly right? right those this is to say that people find ways to live in deadly worlds and honestly it would be so much better if the world wasn't deadly right okay. but i mean well, i yeah. mean those people don't have a choice they have to live in those worlds right and so and so it, it, in, in that chapter of course and it, it, it the stories end in sad, And I mean, right? that sort of hangs onto these, um, these configurations of life that are both deadly and, and lively, right? Um, and so um, the, the bitterness remains, the deadliness remains, right? My focus is on life, but one needs to remember that this is a life that is being waged, is being fought for, right? Um, in a world that seeks to annihilate it.
0: Well, thanks. We've been speaking with Munira Hayat about her fabulous new book, A Landscape of War. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and I hope everyone checks this book out.
1: Thank you so much, Mark. It's been such a pleasure.
0: This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this week we're joined by Neil Ketchley. Uh, associate professor at St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford, who, along with uh, Christopher Bari and Killian Clark, uh, the, are the authors of a new article in Perspectives on Politics entitled Burnings, Beatings, and Bombings Disaggregating Anti Christian Violence in Egypt, 2013 to 2018. And Neil, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for inviting us home. So tell us a little bit about this article that you, uh, uh, Christopher and Killian, uh uh wrote uh what's the major contribution and the major you know kind of point of the of the project yeah
2: that's great uh, thanks for asking so um this is uh i think there's kind of two uh interventions and two motivations uh for the paper uh, on the one hand um i think that so killian chris and i have all to kind of varying degrees worked on um kind of contemporary contentious politics in egypt and uh how to kind of genuine curiosity in trying to uh, understand uh, this kind of, I think, quite uh, important but understudied phenomenon of uh, forms of non-state violence targeting uh, Egypt's Christian community. And as we kind of like started to talk about it and we did some kind of initial um, uh, just uh, literature review uh, work, we discovered that this really wasn't something that people had looked at uh, in any really significant depth and certainly not systematically using Uh, the kinds of tools that that political scientists increasingly use. So that was kind of one primary motivation, and and I would hope that's one contribution uh, of uh, the paper, which is just to kind of systematically describe the who, how, where, and when of uh, the several hundred attacks that occur during the analysis period that we look at, which starts in 2013 and ends uh, uh, in 2018. Um, And then as good uh, political scientists or political sociologists in the case of Chris Barry, uh, we also kind of tried to make uh, a theoretical contribution. A- and here, um, you know, we're really arguing against a kind of quite established body of literature uh, on um, that's kind of often loosely, potentially problematically uh, called uh, ethnic violence, mm-hmm. uh, which as we kind of read it, and we tried to kind of, you know, impose that kind of the kind of set of cookie cutters that you kind of inherit from that uh, theoretical tradition onto the Egyptian case, it just, just didn't really work. It was very, it wasn't particularly satisfying. Uh, and as we kind of picked at it a bit more, we, we realized that there was a real contribution to be made in terms of disaggregation uh, where most of the ethnic violence literature really operates at quite a high level of aggregation. There's a tendency to lump uh, together different kinds of uh, distinct forms of, of, of contention and collective violence within a kind of similar rubric. So often the kind of uh, references to quite, I think, quite nebulous terms like ethnic pogroms, ethnic riots. Uh, And we thought that that we could make a contribution in disaggregating uh, these types of violence. And in doing so, we could potentially reconcile what are often um, incommensurable, uh, irreconcilable uh, claims in literature around the kind of correlates or predictors uh, of this violence. So what we do is we come up with uh, what I hope is not not too glib uh, alliteration of burnings, beatings and bombings, uh, which is effectively a typology where we argue that actually ethnic violence or sectarian violence, is actually constituted by different types uh, of action, and these actions have quite distinct uh, drivers. There are some shared drivers as well that maybe we can go on to talk about, um, but there are very distinct drivers, and and, and this is really tied to the nature of the action itself. It really matters, for example, uh, if the perpetrators of this this violence against Christians are armed versus unarmed. Um, At the same time, uh, we also think that there's probably quite important differences between violence that's targeting individuals that may be quite parochial and localized versus more spectacular forms of still unarmed violence, uh, but violence nonetheless, that, that targets um, kind of uh, symbols and spaces of, of Christian religious authority and association. Um, and so this is, this is where this kind of typology comes from, where, where burnings would be these kind of unarmed attacks uh, that are, again, very spectacular, but don't tend to kill very many people, not many, I mean, they're, they're obviously extremely unpleasant episodes uh, for the people experiencing them, but they tend to involve the kind of destruction of property, but without weapons. Um, and then beatings would be these kinds of local forms of, um, of, of predation, where people are being beaten up with the kind of, you know, fists and rocks and, and the kind of weapons of everyday life. Uh, but most importantly, not with firearms, not with bombs and bullets. And finally, uh, bombing. So looking at um, another type of violence that we find uh, that is often orchestrated by, you know, for want of a better term, or designation terrorist uh, organizations, uh, groups like the Islamic State, uh, that for a long time or for the last nearly decade at this point, uh, have had uh, a foothold uh, in parts of Egypt, in particular North Sina. So uh, what we do is we, we, we develop this typology and then um, we uh, try to show how this could be tractable for other scholars working on comparable cases and then we do a set of analyses uh, both qualitative and quantitative to show that a lot of the predictors that we inherit from uh, the ethnic violence literature they do predict uh, types of ethnic violence but only very particular ones. So for example uh, economic uh, causes um, so beatings, for example, these kinds of unarmed parochial forms of violence, they're much more likely during periods of economic hardship and during uh, Muslim holidays. So you have, you can imagine, for example, instances of, of, of Christians who are, who are you know, drinking or consuming food on the street during Ramadan. This would be, this type of violence is much more likely uh, during these periods. Uh, versus bombings, uh, which are these kind of violent, unarmed targeting of of churches and and other kind of symbols of Coptic religious or Christian religious authority, which are much more likely in the vicinity of of often Islamist forms of street level mobilization and in areas that have tended to vote uh, heavily for Islamists. And also that are powerfully patterned um, by really quite serious instances and episodes of state repression. So in the Egyptian case, the Rabah massacre uh, that occurs in August of, of 2013. And this contrasts with bombings. So groups uh, really armed attacks where actually most most people are dying. This is these are the, the types of events that generate the most casualties, um, which are again armed spectacular forms of violence. And these are much more likely in areas that are kind of basically proximate, uh, both to the to the um, areas of operations where groups like ISIS operate in, in North Sina, um, but also. Um, in uh, kind of places like governance centers in, in kind of more built up areas where there's where there a kind of concentration of political power, important administrative buildings, because these have to, these attacks have to be kind of visible. And so we, we argue that this kind of adds up uh, to a logic of uh, terrorist violence, which is quite different from these other two. And then we have a shared of characteristics. I'll just re- quickly reflect on, on one of these. Um, so beatings and bombings, uh, beatings and burnings, I, I should say, are much more likely in areas where there's been a history of police inaction um, and this is where we can kind of segue into the kind of qualitative contribution uh, of the paper, because it's the, it is the case that the exact circumstances of some of these attacks attacks can be quite ambiguous, and so we draw quite heavily on uh, really high quality work by Egyptian human rights NGOs like EIPR, and um, also uh, very serious field work that have been that's been conducted by Egypt-based uh, researchers uh, to try to make sense of uh, some of these associations. So, for example. Um, it's much more likely to have these kind of parochial forms of, of violence that we call beatings, but also burnings in areas where the police have just recently been on strike or on strike during the Morsi period. That is to say they deliberately withdrew their services as the kind of protectors, the coercive arm of the state, of the people who should be stopping these kinds of violence happening. And in this, we find uh, you know different interpretations that we, we kind of leave somewhat open. So, for example, um, there's evidence. Uh, one reading is that this is instances. These are instances of, of the police Um, in in certain areas, basically being shirking their jobs because their working conditions are so poor that they they don't want to get involved. And so they kind of sit back versus uh, other kind of qualitative evidence that we draw on that points to deliberate facilitation uh, in some instances, cases in which uh, police officers are kind of seen in the crowd directing the violence themselves and that we can then tie to kind of broader political projects. In this case, uh, attempts to kind of discredit uh, anti-coup protesters uh, following the 2013 military
0: coup. So it sounds, uh, there's a lot going on there, uh, in terms of really getting into this disaggregated aggregated data, I mean, obviously you can't just use off the shelf uh, data sets. Tell us what you did, uh, kind of in order to generate, uh, the, at least on the quantitative side, um, uh, the evidence you need to do this type of research. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, um, uh, so, uh, if anyone's
2: everyone's kind of familiar with my work, uh, I do a lot of, um, uh, I put a lot of effort and thought into creating event data sets. So trying to uh, draw on a publicly available source or open source information uh, that you can then systematically triangulate to try to get at the who, how, where, when in violence. And so that's what we did. So we actually begin uh, in the first instance with some publicly available data that an Egyptian NGO uh, has collected. It's called the Ishhad uh, data set. This is primarily composed of of, of Arabic language uh, and uh, other news sources uh, that have kind of tried to systematically catalogue these events, uh, where they happened, who was involved, the type of violence. And then we spent a a really long time basically trying to improve on this. Uh, So triangulating this with human rights reporting uh, and also adding to it uh, by consulting other uh, news and media sources and in doing so, having a little bit more confidence in in the original uh, data. And yeah, and so, uh, so this, is, this is one of the, the products of the, of the paper. This is actually something that we publicly released. And so if anybody wants to kind of either replicate or extend our findings, uh, this is available to people. Um, but I think that this is probably as a first cop, probably the best way of, of, of trying to achieve the things that were interesting, which is just, in the first instance, just to systematically describe where this takes place, who it, who, who's involved in it and how they act. Uh, and then it allows us to do this kind of multivariate uh, regression, a set of regressions that, that we have in the paper.
0: Great. So so the disaggregation, I mean, it makes sense intuitively that, uh, you know, the terrorist groups, uh, you know, doing this strategically would look quite different from this kind of local level parochial type of uh, community uh, violence. And, 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 you know, in the ethnic conflict, ethnic violence type literature, um, I, I think that's understood to some extent, but where do you see yourselves making like a real contribution, like moving the theoretical um, arguments further?
2: Right, yeah, thanks. So, so um, I think in the first instance, so it is the case actually in the ethnic violence literature, there have been really, uh, there have been calls to do this kind of disaggregation exercise uh, for quite a while now, over a decade, uh, if not more. Um, but yet, ostensibly, people haven't picked it up in a way that people have in other fields. So if you study contentious politics, for example, or if you study uh, different forms of political or collective violence, it's actually quite typical uh, to disaggregate. Interestingly though, um, this hasn't really occurred in ethnic violence to this point. and and so that would seem like a like like quite a quite an obvious contribution uh, that we could make. I think that we do something a little bit further as well, which is that that not only do we show that that actually what we think of as this phenomenon of ethnic violence is actually constituted uh, by these quite different uh, categories, or if you buy into our typology, uh, types of violence, uh, but actually we also show how they're different from each other. So it's not sufficient just to say that they have these different predictors, but actually that we do this extra step, which is to show that it, it can be the case, for example, that um, the, the two different types of, of, of violence are actually quite well predicted by a, a given covariate or a kind of theoretically uh, motivated uh, variable but actually the strength of that association can itself be statistically different uh, from each other and so we can start to not only disaggregate but we can also then start, start to kind of add cut, have a more kind of considered understanding of well it could be that that for example uh uh, voting for Islamist matters uh, in in a couple of different types of violence, but actually matters really particularly for this one type of violence. And I think that's not a step that people have otherwise have otherwise taken. And I think that's uh, that hopefully provides a kind of benchmark that people can work with.
0: Now the um, you know this speaks obviously to uh, you know kind of theories that travel far beyond Egypt, but let's maybe for the last question uh, zoom back in on Egypt itself. And, you know, what do you think we've learned uh, through this research about, you know, there's, there's these horrible uh, you know experiences of, of systemic and ongoing attacks on Christians um, over not just this time period, but over a much longer span? What do you think we've learned about that or uh, maybe that we didn't know before?
2: Yeah, thanks. So, so maybe uh, at the risk of, of, of kind of slightly avoiding the question, I think there's some confirmation of things I think people intuited or, or they, that they suspected um, that we find uh, quite compelling evidence for. Um, so, for example, this role of police in action seems to matter. Um, you could, I mean, the way that we operationalize it, it's quite a difficult. Uh, kind of um, explanation to try to observe empirically. But we do find systematically that in places where the police have kind of historically withdrawn their services, that this kind of violence happens. So in th- this actually confirms quali- quantitatively what uh, a lot of qualitative researchers um, have said. And so it's quite nice to see that these two evidence sources align. And so we can probably have more confidence uh, in this claim.
0: Kind of that, zooming you know, out That's though, a real contribution.
2: I think people don't always recognize how important that is. Right, thanks. Um, Uh, I think that zooming out, though, I mean, what is remarkable is that that Egypt's Christian community is really subject to ongoing, sustained forms of violence of these three different types. It is the case that the the nature of this violence does vary across time. So burnings, for example, these kinds of unarmed but quite spectacular attacks on buildings, on the kind of sites of uh, Christian association uh, and, 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 and authority, these really cluster in space and time around this kind of Rabah massacre. And so... There's, there's, I think you can really tie this or key this uh, to, as an instance of, of, of almost kind of, a, of, of a backlash in which, uh, you know, Islamists, fellow travelers, supporters of, of, of the deposed Islamist president, Mohamed Morsi, really take out, uh, you know, take revenge on Egypt's Christian community. And this really seems to, seems to matter. But against this backdrop, there is this kind of ongoing forms of kind of local violence. Whether that's uh, kind of targeting of individuals because of um, uh, you know per- perceived uh, crossings of cultural c- culturally accepted behaviour, or um, for in context of of, of of increased kind of economic hardship and competition, these kind of parochial forms of beating really kind of empirically pattern and, and kind of uh, occur throughout our analysis period and presumably continue up into the present and, and and gives you a kind of a real sense of why Egypt's Christian community have like have a you know a set of of, of political preoccupations, both in terms of their relationship to the state, but also about how they perceive uh, the kind of other religious communities in
0: the country, and maybe their kind of political representatives. Well, great. Thanks, Neil, for joining us and uh, for talking about your article, Burnings, Beatings, and Bombings.